Australia's Uranium Opportunities by Keith Alder Recorded by Logan Smith with the permission of the Alder family Chapter 8 Declassification and the Geneva Conferences Research and development toward the peaceful uses of atomic energy were made more difficult in the early years by the prevailing security provisions which applied to information, both within each country and more so between countries. This was a legacy from the wartime development of the military uses. Australia was fortunate in obtaining agreements with the United Kingdom in September 1954 and with the United States in June 1956 for cooperation and access to information. And the first major breakthrough in international sharing of information came in August 1955, when the first international conference on the peaceful uses of atomic energy was held in Geneva, following an Atoms for Peace initiative by President Eisenhower. At the time, this was probably the largest scientific conference ever held. It was attended by over 5,000 delegates from 74 nations and lasted for two weeks, during which many hundreds of papers were delivered. There were exhibits from many participating nations, but the highlights of the exhibitions were those from the USA, USSR, Canada and the UK. The United States Atomic Energy Commission, USAEC, actually had an operating reactor on display and the delegates could see the eerie blue glow of Cherenkov radiation around the fuel elements deep in the water pool, which was the moderator, coolant and biological shield. There was some light-hearted discussion during coffee breaks about whether someone would poison the reactor by tipping some borax into the pool. Boron is a strong neutron absorber, but it turns out the Americans had thought of that possibility. There was an invisible layer of plate glass below the surface of the pool. The 1955 conference was probably one of the most exciting scientific conferences ever to be held. For the first time, people could actually talk about what had been a matter of extreme secrecy and could see what their contemporaries had been up to in other countries. The Australian delegation was led by Professor J.P. Baxter, chairman of the AAEC and included members from the state power utilities and from industry as well as advisors from the CSIRO and the AAEC. Four of us from the team at Harwell, Watson Munro, Dalton, Miles and Alder attended. Then in December 1956, the USA, UK and Canada announced major declassifications of atomic energy data. And in September 1958, there was a second Geneva conference. This time, Sir Mark Oliphant led the delegation and eight of us from Lucas Heights attended. The big new releases of information were in the field of fusion research and the fundamentals of plasma physics, and there were exhibits of full-scale experimental rigs from the USA and the USSR. Everyone was surprised to learn how far work had progressed in the USSR. The consensus of opinion among fusion scientists in Geneva in 1958 was that the feasibility of fusion power, i.e. formation of helium by fusion of lighter atoms of hydrogen isotopes with large release of energy, would be demonstrated within the next decade, with commercial fusion power within the next decade after that, i.e. before 1980. But we are not there yet, in 1996. 
in fact, not by a long way. Those who predicted the end of fission-based power were somewhat ahead of their time. There were two further Geneva conferences. In 1964, Professor Baxter led the Australian delegation of 14, again including representatives from the state utilities, and in 1971, I had the privilege of leading, with a delegation of 15. It is worth mentioning the themes of these conferences, as expressed by the summing up of the final plenary sessions. In 1955, the advent of atomic energy was regarded as the greatest discovery since fire. In 1958, it was to be power without limit, power too cheap to meter. In 1964, the chairman, Glenn Seaborg, chairman of the USAEC, called it Conference of Fulfillment, as nuclear power had established its competitive position and its future was assured. And in 1971, the emphasis was on the cleanliness of nuclear power and its ability to meet the energy needs of the world into the long-term future. By this time, the concern was being expressed worldwide about the depletion of fossil fuel reserves and the pollution of the atmosphere arising from their combustion, and nuclear power was seen as the answer to these problems. But the prediction for the timescale for fusion power had been revised by 1971 to a further 10 to 20 years of laboratory work, followed by another 30 years of development to full commercial use. At the time of writing of this account, I believe both of these conclusions of the last Geneva conference, nearly 25 years ago, to be still valid. I am less certain of the future of fusion than about the promise of fission power, which has been through many difficult periods since, and which has not expanded to the extent then predicted. But concerns about fossil fuels depletion and the atmospheric pollution have grown, and there are no promising alternatives to nuclear power for large-scale, baseload electrical generation to meet these problems in the long-term future, particularly in the large population areas of Asia and the Western Pacific Rim. Most critics of nuclear power, and particularly journalists, put their faith in renewable resources such as solar, wind, tidal and wave power schemes, but usually appear to have no quantitative appreciation of the magnitude of the energy requirements of modern cities and industries. These alternative sources can and do make appreciable contribution to our energy needs and will increase in importance, but those who believe they pose the final solution have not done their arithmetic. The Geneva conferences were vitally important to those working in the field of atomic energy in the 1950-70 period. They were the major occasions for release and publication of the results of work in many nations, and for meetings and discussions by those responsible for the direction of the work. There were also very enjoyable social gatherings for the participants. All delegations hosted receptions and other similar activities so much so that invitations rolled in at the rate of many per evening, and each delegation had to roster its participation amongst its members so as to have some representation at every function, and avoid giving offence to the hosts. A really intensive diplomatic round, but very enjoyable. The Atom had created a strong international old boys club, and it was a privilege to belong. At the 1964 conference, I was pleased to meet Sir William Penny again, 
when I met my former boss, Graham Hopkin, from Aldermaston, and he reintroduced me to Penny, who had been our overall chief when I worked at Woolwich. He said, do you remember Alder, Bill? To which Penny replied, of course, the only man who could ever get the timing right on my old Alvis. Such, apparently, was my most memorable contribution to the early UK nuclear program. By the time the last of the Geneva conferences was held in 1971, the principal initiatives in all major countries had passed from governments to industry. There was one further major international conference on the atom in Salzburg in 1977. And by that time, most of the emphasis was on the nuclear industry. The United States had always taken a leading role in the industrial development of nuclear energy, hand-in-hand with the government research and development in the large national laboratories, Brookhaven, Oak Ridge and the Argonne. Some major companies had their own reactor projects. For example, in the 1950s, North American Aviation had a sodium graphite reactor project which Brian Hickman and I visited in 1957. The Gulf General Atomics Company began work on high-temperature gas-cooled reactors in the 1950s and still works in the field. The work of the Westinghouse and General Electric companies on water-moderated and cooled reactors was mentioned earlier, and there were many others participating in development of reactor components of subsystems. This This industrial participation led to another regular program of international conferences, held by the U.S. Atomic Industrial Forum in Washington, D.C. every four years. These also were valuable gatherings for keeping in touch with the world scene, and I was privileged to be able to attend most of them over the period 1960 to 80. End of chapter 8. To all my Australian listeners, I have a favour to ask. Australia's energy policy is likely to be a federal election issue in 2019. I created a voter's message to the minister soundbite. If you support nuclear power for Australia, please forward it to your minister to show your support for this industry. More information and a link to the soundbite is in the description. Thank you. Australia's Uranium Opportunities by Keith Alder Recorded by Logan Smith with the permission of the Alder family. Chapter 9. The Jarvis Bay Nuclear Power Project Aided by visits and discussions overseas, and by conferences such as those in Geneva and Washington, the Commission always maintained a watching brief on nuclear power developments overseas. It had a permanent power studies group of engineers led by D.R. Bob Griffiths who had long experience with the South Australian Electricity Trust, including several years seconded to Harwell during the period 1954-1958, when AAEC staff were there also. Bob Griffiths was unique in Australia in his knowledge of nuclear power development overseas, and was greatly respected both in Australia and by his contemporaries overseas. See comments on the Washington Talks, Chapter 11 and his views were often sought by the state power utilities and by the Canberra bureaucracy. Based on this continuing assessment and consultations with state utilities, 
the Commission came to the view early in 1969 that nuclear power was likely to be introduced into Australia during the next decade. In the mid to late 1960s, the rate of ordering of nuclear power plants in the developed countries reached an all-time high, and this trend was later given a further boost by the so-called energy crisis of 1973. In the late 1960s, it seemed that nuclear power was likely to take over soon from fossil fuels on a worldwide basis. As we know now, the order rate was excessive and not sustainable, and there were many cancellations in the early 1970s. But the decision to undertake the Jarvis Bay nuclear project must be seen in the light of those circumstances of the late 1960s. The chairman of the commission, Sir Philip Baxter, had strong views that Australia should try to adopt a common reactor system for all states. However, recognising that the separate state authorities, the state electricity commissions, boards, trusts, had the right to choose the system they believed to be best for their needs. The commission still saw strong advantages in the Commonwealth government building a lead station ahead of the time at which the states might begin making their own decisions on building nuclear stations. The Commission believed that by careful choice of reactor and location, the station would be competitive with fossil fuel plants and therefore would not need to be subsidised by government. But the main reason for building it would be firstly to provide training and experience for staff of the state authorities also as a real project around which Australia would develop its licensing and regulatory structure on a national basis ahead of the time that it would be essential for the advent of state stations. This reason was seen as extremely important, based on the experiences of utilities and governments overseas, where commercial nuclear power ran into many difficulties and delays because of lack of forward planning of the regulatory and licensing structure or development of the rules in the abstract, divorced from real platforms thrown up by the early stations. The Commission and the state authorities were fully aware from their own studies that a decision by a generating authority to go nuclear was a major step affecting every branch and department of the organisation, not just the generating station itself. The fueling, fuel procurement and eventual disposal staff training and qualification procedures, health and safety matters, security and grid operating procedures all would have effects throughout the organisation. Sir Philip Baxter took the lead in convincing the government of the day that the project was important for the future of electricity generation in Australia. The Prime Minister, Mr John, later Sir John, Gorton, and the Minister responsible for our activities, Mr David Fairbairn, Minister for National Development, supported the proposal and the government agreed that a feasibility study should proceed. There was some opposition within the government by the Treasurer, Mr William McMahon, and his department. This minority view did not prevail at the time, but was to prove important later. In February and March 1969, the Minister and Sir Philip Baxter, accompanied by the Secretary of the Minister's Department, Mr R. W. Bill Boswell, also a member of the Commission and later its Chairman, toured the State Capitals and discussed with State Ministers the various responsibilities of States and the Commonwealth in relation to nuclear energy.
The minister outlined Commonwealth duties and responsibilities relating to nuclear power, including international obligations regarding the control and use of radioactive material, the application of safeguards, safety standards and discharges into atmosphere or the sea. The Commonwealth would also be involved in problems of sighting and radiological protection, both of which could have effects across state boundaries. It would also have a role in nuclear damage insurance. Soon after these discussions, the government also arranged the establishment of a National Consultative Committee on Nuclear Energy, in which all states and the Commonwealth could discuss and evolve policies for the future. One of the major reasons for the proposal to build the Jarvis Bay Station, which appears to have been forgotten or is ignored by others, was the nature of the Australian Constitution. It gives only certain specific powers to the federal government, which seems to stretch their application rather beyond what I believe the fathers of the Constitution had in mind, particularly through the external affairs power, e.g. the use of international treaties and agreements, even when not ratified by our federal parliament. But electrical power generation is not in any way a federal matter, and the Australian states have always been very independently minded to preserve their freedom of action in this field. This attitude was very clear at the time of the Jarvis Bay proposal, but having said that, the states appreciated how difficult it would be for them to go nuclear without the requisite regulatory and licensing structure and federal-states relationships being established in detail beforehand. It has often been asserted that the project would never have been started unless the AAEC actively promoted it. And this is probably true. Baxter certainly had a major role in convincing Prime Minister Gorton that it should happen, but the state utilities all agreed at meetings with Commonwealth people that it was a good thing. Nobody said no. Certainly, they were aware that the Commonwealth would foot the bill. Nobody disputes that. But if they had any views contrary to the AAEC on the prospects for nuclear power, they would surely have expressed them. I knew most of the people personally and knew that they expressed their attitudes very clearly and independently on matters to do with power generation. It was their business, not that of the AAEC. The Commission had, from the very beginning, set up external advisory committees in the early years divided into a business advisory group and a scientific advisory committee. By 1969 to 1970, these had been amalgamated into one strong advisory committee made up of senior industrial and academic executives, including the chairman of the Electricity Commission of Victoria and New South Wales. It was clear from the start that three states were the principal contenders to be first with nuclear power, South Australia, Victoria and New South Wales, simply because their grids were large enough in capacity to absorb the output of the minimum-sized nuclear plant then considered economically attractive, about 500 megawatts electrical. South Australia would be struggling in this context, so the choice of location was most likely to involve the State Electricity Commissions of Victoria and New South Wales. It should be remembered that most state utilities had their own study and assessment teams in the 1960s, examining the prospects for nuclear power in their networks. Some had been studying it before the AAEC was founded, 
For example, the Electricity Trust of South Australia had a three-man team of engineers working at Harwell in the early 1950s. And the first positive study proposal for a nuclear power station in Australia that I remember was for Mount Isa in 1955, when we were at Harwell. We persuaded them that it was premature. There were some extravagant ideas put forward by the Nuclear Research Foundation in the University of Sydney in 1955, foreshadowing a line of nuclear power stations from Alice Springs to the Arafura Sea. But we regarded these as public relations statements to assist fundraising. Then in June 1969, the Commonwealth Government proposed to the Government of New South Wales that it should participate in a feasibility study of a 500 megawatt nuclear power station to be built on Commonwealth territory, either in the Australian Capital Territory or at Jarvis Bay, to feed power into the New South Wales grid. It was foreseen that the power output would be about that required by the ACT, so there was some additional reason for Commonwealth ownership. Eventually, the site chosen for the power station was within Commonwealth Territory at Jarvis Bay on the New South Wales south coast. From the engineering viewpoint, it was a good site, in terms of a seismically stable environment, a controllable exclusion area, easy access, reasonable proximity to a high-voltage distribution system, and access to cooling water, with discharge to an ocean outfall. Jarvis Bay also had the advantage that it is within the state of New South Wales, which had the largest electrical generating capacity of the states. The Electricity Commission of New South Wales... ECNSW, under the chairmanship of Mr A.W.B. Cody, agreed to participate in the project and to be responsible for the manning and running of the power station once commissioned, with the AAEC to provide only one senior engineer in an advisory and liaison capacity. Sir Philip Baxter, who had been part-time chairman of the AAEC since 1957, retired from his position as Vice-Chancellor of the University of New South Wales and became full-time Chairman of the Commission when the Jarvis Bay project had the go-ahead. He foresaw the project as a major step to take Australia into the atomic age. And this was the theme of the announcement by the Prime Minister in October 1969. The project began in December 1969, with the issue of invitations to express interest to the organisations overseas likely to be interested, 14 in number. Preparation of the specification and tender documents by teams from both the AAEC and the ECNSW, assisted by lawyers from the Attorney General's Department, was completed by late February 1970. Tender documents were issued on the 28th of February 1970. The task of forming the appropriate teams required a considerable amount of organisation within both commissions. In the AAEC, I was detached from my normal duties as director, research establishment, and moved into head office at Coogee as Commissioner for Power. However, I spent most of my time at Lucas Heights, where the actions took place in the pre-tender and tender assessment periods. I obtained the commission's agreement to detach the Chief of Physics Division, Dr John Simons, to work full-time on the project. John had to collect the appropriate team members from the research and operating divisions and organise them into the various special groups needed. Firstly, to write the technical specifications for the nuclear part of the station, and later to assess the tenders. 
All this he did most capably and with great enthusiasm. The task of winkling the best staff out of a division chief to work on something else for an indefinite period was not always easy. Not all chiefs were directly involved in the project. By the time we were in full swing, writing the specifications in tender documents and later assessing the tenders, there were approximately 70 AAEC and EC NSW officers working full-time in the team, scientists and engineers, and also about another 150 on a part-time basis. It is hard to say exactly how many, as they were called in for particular tasks and then returned to normal duties. We had 10 specialised subcommittees covering the details. A senior engineer of ECNSW, Mr Bruce Kirkwood, was in charge of their efforts, and he worked full-time on the project in close collaboration with John Simons and myself. Bruce was later the first commissioner for fuel and power in Western Australia. The integration of AAEC-ECNSW staff worked very well, largely due to the team leaders on both sides. During the site selection, tendering and tender assessment, and the environmental studies, the AAEC was assisted by officers of a number of other Commonwealth and State Departments and instrumentalities, including, from states, State Electricity Commission of Victoria, Electricity Trust of South Australia, New South Wales Department of Occupational Health, New South Wales Chief Secretary's Department, Fisheries Branch, New South Wales State Planning Authority, New South Wales Department of Main Roads, Shoalhaven Shire Council, Australian National University. And from the Commonwealth, Crown Solicitor's Office, Treasury, Department of the Interior, Department of the Navy, Department of Works, Bureau of Mineral Resources, Department of Health, Department of Customs and Excise, Portmaster General's Department, Bureau of Meteorology. The AAEC people concentrated on the nuclear side of the proposed station, called the Nuclear Island or the Nuclear Steam Supply System, NSSS, with the conventional side, the power generating installation, being covered predominantly by the ECNSW. The two came closest working on detailed matters to do with the design of the control system and control room where the nuclear, steam and electrical systems had to be interfaced and coordinated. Most of the AAEC officers who had worked in England on the SGHWN study and those from the work in Canada on CANDU Can BLW were involved on a full-time basis in the Jarvis Bay project. During the final stages of the tendering and assessment process, the AAEC set up a separate office for the project we purchased a disused 10-pin bowling alley at Mascot in Sydney, and the engineer who had been in charge of our Canadian team returned to Australia to take charge of it, Mr W.E.T. Bill Causey. He had a senior administrative officer, Mr H.W. Burt Bowen, a full-time staff of engineers and scientists, and two legal officers from the Attorney General's Department. Tenders closed on the 15th of June, 1970. 14 offers were received from seven organisations in the USA, UK, Germany and Canada. They covered five different reactor types. In many ways, this was the world's first genuine competitive tender for a nuclear power station. There were no financial strings or deals attached, 
and no preference indicated for any particular type of nuclear reactor. There was, however, one unique and unusual condition. The AAEC specified the reactor had to be capable of being fuelled with Australian uranium, with the fuel elements being made in Australia, though not for the initial fuel loading. The fact that most of the reactors likely to be offered would require some degree of enrichment of the uranium was covered, as tenderers were required to show how this enrichment could be achieved in Australia. At first sight, this appeared to favour the Canadian system of heavy water moderated and cooled reactors, which could operate on natural uranium. But the numerous other tenderers took the condition in their stride, realising that they would have to come to some arrangement to make enrichment technology available to Australia. It was clearly stated in the tender documents that the AAEC reserved the right to accept any or none of the systems offered. The tenders were delivered to the AAEC head office at Coogee in Sydney and involved a very large quantity of paperwork, estimated to be between 5 and 7 tonnes. The task of assessing these offers was formidable and required four months of detailed study by the AAEC ECNSW teams. Eventually, the offers were reduced to a short list of four, covering three types of reactor, two pressurised water reactors, PWRs, one from the Westinghouse Corporation of the United States, and one from Kraft Work Union, KWU, of Germany, the heavy water reactor from Atomic Energy of Canada Limited, CANDU for short, and a steam-generating heavy water reactor, SGHW, from a British Industrial Nuclear Consortium, the Nuclear Power Group, TNPG. Also, KWU were involved in the tender from TNPG. Within the AAEC, the then executive member, Mr Maurice Timms, took part in the contractual and financial side of the preparation of tender documents and later went with a team to San Francisco to work in the offices of the Bechtel Corporation on tender assessment. Bechtel were appointed by the AAEC to be consultants during the whole period of the project. The San Francisco team included Bob Griffiths and several of his engineers, as well as people to work on the contractual and financial arrangements proposed in the tenders. But in Australia, the technical assessment took place almost completely at Lucas Heights, where the documents were distributed to the 10 specialist working parties of the AAEC and ECNSW staff, for examination and the preparation of questions on matters of doubt or uncertainty. Both the AAEC and the ECNSW agreed with the conclusions of the tender assessment team on the shortlist for final study, so eliminating seven of the tenderers. Attention was then concentrated on preparation of the questions and comments for interviews with teams from the shortlisted four companies and consortia which took place in August and September 1970, first in San Francisco for economic matters, then in Sydney for technical discussions. These interviews in Sydney occupied a full week for each of the systems offered. In each case, the tendering organisation sent a powerful team of specialists to Sydney for the interviews, backed up by additional supporting information as appropriate. These visiting experts were interviewed by the specialist working groups which reported daily to the Plenary Technical Assessment Committee and at the end of the week a full meeting of all concerned, tenderer and assessors was held to discuss the results and to point out where additional information was required. 
It was a very intensive exercise indeed, for both the potential customer and the suppliers. I feel it essential to emphasise the leading roles played by John Simons and Bruce Kirkwood in this whole exercise. It was something entirely new in Australia and it went like clockwork from the start. I recall one episode with wry amusement. After a very long day, the then Chief of Materials Division, Dr D.G. Terry Walker, and I walked down the hill from the meeting place in the Physics Division where we had been arguing all day about pressure tube alloys with the Canadians. And he said to me, we must be out of our minds. Here we have a beautiful research establishment and plenty of interesting things to do, so why on earth do we disrupt all of this to take on the building of a power station? We both thought it worthwhile. We believed that we were doing something of major importance to the national interest. There were many needs during each of these assessment sessions for answers to questions to be obtained from overseas, and in most cases, the visiting teams were able to do this by telephone. However, there were two instances in which this was inadequate. Westinghouse failed to satisfy all of our questions on their pressure vessel, and additional experts from the USA came out quickly to participate in the final discussions of their tender. The other case involved some unresolved safety aspects of the Canadian system and we sent our own senior officer in reactor safety, Mr. D.E.W. Don Crancher, to Canada to see for himself what they did about matters which were worrying us. They related to non-destructive testing of the inlet and outlet headers of the heavy water pressure system. One technical matter relating to standards and practices in Australia appeared to be a great surprise to all four of our shortlisted contenders. The ECNSW officers were very critical of proposals for instrumentation and control of the steam and electrical systems, more so in some tenders than others. But the comments applied to some degree to all. They all had to upgrade the technology offered, and I recall one American expert telling us, we had no idea you were so sophisticated in Australia. Definitely one up to the ECNSW, showing that their control technology was fully state of the art. We were very pleased to have corresponding comments in all cases about the standard of knowledge displayed about the nuclear island and the stringency of the questioning. In fact, years later, I had favourable comments from nuclear contemporaries overseas who had been in the firing line. I recall one saying, had never had such a hammering before or since. What a pity it was all wasted. The result of our tender assessment was a recommendation to the Commission that the Jarvis Bay Nuclear Power Station should utilise the British Steam Generating Heavy Water Reactor offered by the Nuclear Power Group in collaboration with the German KWU Group. The main reasons for this choice were technical. The economic assessment had shown no major advantages to any one of the shortlisted systems. Most importantly, the design of the SGHW appeared conservative, whereas several others seemed to have far less margin in relation to the claimed power output, and the arrangements proposed for eventual enrichment of uranium in Australia seemed more favourable than others' proposals. We will come back to this subject a little later. The Electricity Commission of New South Wales was prepared to accept the recommendation for the SGHW. After all, the Commonwealth was paying but those who had worked in the detail of the tender assessment program were fully in favour. And the ECNSW was impressed also by the proposals put forward by TNPG for training of their future operating crew in the UK. 
There was some criticism of the recommendation within the AAEC, mainly on the grounds of lack of operating experience with the SGHW system, which had been obtained only with the prototype plant at Winfrith Heath, Dorset, in the UK. While this was true, the experience with the prototype had been long enough and favourable enough for the technical people not to be worried by the fact that the Australian reactor would be a considerable scale up from the prototype. This opinion was reinforced by the nature of the basic design of the SGHW, using pressure tubes rather than a pressure vessel. Scale up meant more pressure tubes in a bigger reactor, Calandria, but the individual hardware of pressure tubes, fuel elements, control mechanisms, etc. would be the same as in the smaller prototype. In particular, the executive member of the commission, Mr MC Maurice Timms, was much in favour of the Westinghouse offer, principally on the grounds of the greater experience of Westinghouse in the design and construction of their nuclear power reactors, and the far greater period of operation of stations they had supplied. Nothing succeeds like success. But Maurice was not a technical person, and the Commission accepted the recommendation of the technical assessors. Philip Baxter had his own preference for the Canadian system, but was also persuaded by the results of the assessment team, which he studied in great detail. He had a strong preference for the pressure tube systems rather than the pressure vessels, which he told me on one occasion came from his time as Director of Research for ICI in the UK where apparently a continuing worry was corrosion of pressure vessels in heavy chemical industry. During the latter stages of assessment, the mascot office was set up and the planning for construction began. The site at Jarvis Bay was cleared and excavated to the appropriate level, and a new main road from the Pacific Highway south of Nara was constructed to close to the site. The AAEC also carried out detailed environmental studies at and around the site to establish records of the flora and fauna, and the natural background radiation. Marine studies included water movements and marine life, and for this work, six AAEC staff members undertook naval diving training. One of them remarked to me one day that one of the organisms they were studying did not occur there at all, yet. It was expected that mussels would grow in profusion in the warm water outfall, as had happened in many overseas installations. The government advanced $2.29 million in the Commission's annual budget for these programs, including the capital works. However, while we were in process of finalising the contract to be signed with TNPG, there were changes in the federal government. The Prime Minister, Mr John Gorton, was replaced by Mr William McMahon, and some cabinet reshuffling resulted in a change of minister responsible for national development and with it, the AAEC. Our new minister was Sir Reginald Swartz, who declared himself in favour of the power station project. However, this did not ensure that it went ahead. At that time, I and my number two in the power group, Mr A.D. Andrew Thomas, were travelling up and down frequently to Canberra for discussions with Treasury officers about the details of funding for the construction programme. Soon after the changes in government, we detected a cooling off in the attitude of the Treasury officials. We dealt with two, Dr Roy Cameron, later government statistician, and Mr Ron Gilbert. They did not actually say no to us about anything, but it became obvious to us that deliberate delaying tactics had been ordered from above, 
Eventually, the two of us were called to an interview with the Prime Minister, who informed us that Cabinet proposed to defer the decision on the Jarvis Bay project for a year. He blamed financial stringencies. How can I possibly approve a nuclear power station when I'm faced with the need to cut preschool education in Canberra? We pointed out that deferral for a year would mean all tender offers were no longer valid. But the reply was, so be it. This decision was made without the AAEC having made a final recommendation to the government on the selection of the SGHW and TNPG as suppliers. The project was shelved while we were preparing the Cabinet submission making this recommendation. In retrospect, the Jarvis Bay nuclear power station would have been a tremendous bargain if it had gone ahead. That is of course assuming that it operated according to the specification. The history of nuclear plants has been very good in this respect, a fact seldom admitted by anti-nuclear groups, who simply do not want to know about it. The power output was to be 600 megawatts electrical from a single turbo alternator. The capital cost was to be $208 million, and we had allowed an additional 20% contingency in our figuring within this sum. In calculating the cost of electricity at the switchyard, at 0.6 cents per kilowatt hour. Bearing in mind that the cost of uranium has gone down over the years since that estimate was made, currently to about one quarter of the 1970 price. I believe that the station would have produced the cheapest electricity in Australia during its operating lifetime. The consequences of Australia's decision to defer for a year, which de facto meant to cancel, and it was formally deferred again a year later, had important consequences outside Australia, in particular for South Africa and for the United Kingdom. The South Africans had followed our tender invitation and assessment with considerable interest, and we had a delegation of their people visit us to study how we had gone about the whole exercise. The delegation included Dr. Roo, Director of the South African Nuclear Research Program, and Dr. Strazaka, chairman of the South African Electricity Board. They were interested because South Africa was on the point of going nuclear and had similar ideas to ours, i.e. to work towards fueling their power stations with their own uranium. They professed great interest in our selection of the SGHW system and believed it to be a good decision and one which they could well follow. Thus, if the Australian project had gone ahead, it may have been followed by a similar one in South Africa and the UK would have had two export orders. As it turned out, neither did proceed, and the SGHW system did not survive. The prototype station was closed down several years later. But there were other major consequences internationally, relating to the world supply pattern for enriched uranium power station fuel. All tenderers for Jarvis Bay, for reactors using enriched fuel, which in practice meant everyone but the Canadians, had to show how they planned to arrange for enrichment to take place in Australia. I believe this triggered the actions of the possessors of the enrichment technology over the next several years, all of which were of great interest to the AAEC. The tenders in our shortlist were from the USA, the UK and Germany, and Canada. The first two had to show how enrichment could be done in Australia. The USA sent officers from the United States Atomic Energy Commission to tell us that the USA was giving serious thought to providing technology for offshore enrichment plants, and that Australia would be a favoured site for such a plant. 
The TNPG KWU people told us of the success of gas centrifuge technology development for uranium enrichment in the UK and Germany, also in Holland, and that cooperation with Australia should be possible to meet the tender conditions set out by the AAEC. Both of these topics were followed up within the next year by major initiatives taken by the USAEC and by the British-German-Dutch consortium Urenco to promote offshore uses of their enrichment technology. We shall look at these developments next. The indefinite deferment cancellation of the Jarvis Bay project was a blow to the AAEC and to Sir Philip Baxter, its chairman, in particular. Baxter had taken the initiative in the first place and subsequently has been blamed by some for wanting an Australian reactor to produce plutonium for weapons purposes. This is entirely fictitious. Baxter believed, as did the largest state utilities, that nuclear power was just around the corner for Australia and that the lead station concept would be of tremendous benefit to lead Australia into the nuclear age. Sir Philip Baxter retired soon after in April 1972, and Mr R. W. Boswell became full-time chairman. He had been member of the commission earlier while secretary, Department of National Development. However, the research establishment recovered quickly, realising that there was plenty to do in the national interest. And although power reactor-oriented research was to be reduced, the effort released could be applied very usefully to research on uranium fuels, including enrichment, which had been starved for effort while so many of the staff had been diverted to the Jarvis Bay project. This was an appropriate time for a shift in program emphasis as it happened, because there were large new discoveries of uranium in the Northern Territory, Western Australia and Queensland, and contracts had been signed for deliveries from some of the new mines then being opened. Australia seemed poised for the establishment of a major new industry based on our uranium resources. So the mood in the AAEC was still one of optimism. We couldn't go ahead with our power station, but we could redeploy our resources to preparation for a great new industry. End of chapter 9 Thank you for listening. Chapters 10, 11 and 12 tell the story of the AAEC's attempts to develop a uranium enrichment industry in Australia, along with the political implications this meant internationally and the problems found with political interference from home.